Samuel 12, 1-15. The Lord said Nathan to David, when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing, and I had no pity. Then then Nathan said to David, You are the man, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonite. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. Thanks, Anna. Uh, David uh, despised the word of the Lord uh, there in verse 9. This is the same David we've uh, been following over for the past uh, year or so, the same David who was a man after God's own heart, Uh, the same David who wrote these words in Psalm 40. I delight to do your will, O my God, Uh, your law is within my heart. And yet in verse 9 here, as Anna just read to us, David despised the word of the Lord. Uh, Last week, as uh, as Ian showed us so powerfully and so um, uh, clinically in a way, in a calculated and sordid and shameful uh, chain of events, uh, David managed to break at least half of the Ten Commandments in rapid time. And as we'll see today, his life will never be the same again as a result of it. Uh, But looking in from the outside, as it were, uh, it seems that David might have actually got away with everything that he did. Uh, The child uh, born to uh, Uriah's wife had been born. He was more settled now. And it it seems like his cover-up had had worked. Uh, At least a year has passed from the end of chapter 11 to the start of chapter 12. And David writes this in Psalm 32, another psalm he wrote reflecting on all that had happened. 
And when I kept silent, and my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And you might see in your Bible, if it's like mine here, the immediate context to this chapter is there in verse 27 of chapter 11 at the top of the page. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But God in his infinite mercy, he's decided already that David's cover-up is not going to work. It's God's grace to David, in fact, because he loves David. David is a man after God's own heart, after all. So God is not going to let David sweep this under the carpet, shrug it off, avoid it. Simply, it didn't ever happen. I know God is determined here, in these next verses, that David's cover-up will fail. I remember Saul. Uh, He was a man who uh, rejected God and God rejected him. Uh, But David here, we're going to see in these verses, is actually going to be restored by God. Uh, But this uh, road to restoration, this road to repentance, as it were, is is not going to be a a swift and easy one for David. It's going to be a a rocky road, uh, one where David is going to be on the receiving end of hammer blows from God, as it were. And we'll see as we go through these verses, only after David is brought to his knees can he be lifted up from his sin and his shame. These next verses as we go through them, these are some of the most significant verses in the whole of the Bible. And it's not an overestimation. So I want us to see three things here. Firstly, that David is confronted by the Lord's servant. Secondly, that David is uncovered by the Lord's word. And thirdly, and most gloriously, David is pardoned by the Lord's mercy. So here we have it in verse 1. David confronted by the Lord's servant. And then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Remember, Nathan was a servant of God. And as a result, when God said, go, Nathan went. And when God said he had a message for Nathan to deliver, he delivered it. Uh, This is not the first time we meet Nathan, of course. Uh, Way back in chapter 7, God said to Nathan, go and speak this word to David. Uh, And on that time, it was a a very different word to what he has to say here. And Nathan then was a bearer of good news. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 and and verse 8 says this, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep uh, to make you a prince of my people. I've been with you. And then verse 9, I cut off your enemies. I've decided to make a great name for you. And Nathan continues to David, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. But my steadfast love will never depart from him as I took it from Saul. And David responded to that word from Nathan in chapter 7 with with what comes in the second half of chapter 7, was it's essentially a a great prayer of gratitude for all that God has done for David. But this time, it's entirely different. This time, Nathan is now charged with rebuking the king. The king of Israel has done evil in God's sight, and it is Nathan's job to do this. And there is a hammer blow in his message. Uh, But if you like, he is not responsible for that hammer blow. And notice how Nathan begins. Uh, There were two men in a certain city, uh, the one rich and the other poor. Uh, He starts along the lines of of Jesus, doesn't he? 
Uh, Jesus says a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, and we know how the story goes. Uh, We're not sure whether this was a real story or whether this was a a parable that Nathan is telling to David here, Uh, but the king of the time would have been responsible for executing justice and righteousness in the kingdom. And he would have had to deal with matters such as these. And we see in verse 3 that this little lamb that the man had, it, it grew up with him, it grew up with his children. It's a very kind of pastoral and family scene, isn't it? It used to eat of the food, it used to drink from his cup, and it used to lie in his arms. No need to put your hands up like you're back at school, but do you remember anything from chapter 11 and those three words? Eat, drink, lie. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. If David had half a conscience here, uh, he may have been uncovered immediately, uh, but he didn't, uh, because his conscience at this point was asleep. And when our conscience is asleep, uh, you and I can read the Bible, we can listen to the Bible, we can even potentially understand the Bible, but remain completely unchanged by the Bible. And we can read our Bible every day, we can go along to Grace Community every week, we can come along to church every Sunday, we can, we can listen to sermons and we can be entirely unchanged by the Bible. And notice these three luxuries of domestic bliss which Uriah had chosen not to enjoy are represented here. And Nathan continues in his story and, uh, and tells of, the, of the, the traveler coming to the rich man and uh, the rich man decided to take this poor man's lamb and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And then verse 5, we see David's response. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And notice what David says here as well. As the Lord lives. Now that's a bit rich coming from David, isn't it? Uh, we went through the whole of chapter 11 last week with Ian, and only once in, chapter t- in verse 27 was God mentioned. And that was only when we hear that God was deeply displeased with what David had done. Uh, David has just spent the greater part of the last part of his life uh, ignoring God completely, as if God didn't exist, as if there is no Lord that lives. Sometimes we can be just the same, can't we? And maybe sometimes life is going well and there is no need to depend on God. Sometimes we can just cruise on by in life and God just becomes at the periphery. David has been living like this, living as if there is no God. And he says, of course, as the Lord lives, this man should die. But why should he die? He says, justice must be served. There should be fourfold retribution. Uh, David quoting the law in Exodus 22, where it says that whoever steals a sheep must pay it back fourfold. David is outraged here. But he is still failing to make the connection and still failing to realize that this story is actually his story. And we see our sin most clearly in other people, don't we? 
It's much easier to say, oh, oh, look at that. Did you hear about what they did? Did you see what they were doing at the weekend? And all the time failing to realize in our own hearts that the word of God comes firstly to us and applies to our own lives. And maybe you look around the room today or you're at work tomorrow or you're at uni over the next few weeks and you think, well, I know such and such did that. And I know who they slept with a few weeks ago. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like them. And then Nathan delivers his punchline, as it were, his hammer blow there in verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Uh, but even here today, it's easy to think of ourselves, yeah, yeah David, he, he's the man. Uh, but that's not me. I'm not a murderer. I didn't steal my neighbor's wife. Uh, Surely the application of this story is to to someone like David who's done uh, these terrible things. Surely this is for really, really bad people. Surely this judgment is for people like Vladimir Putin or or Wayne Cousins who murdered Sarah Everard. How can this have anything to say to me, this averagely respected person here at Glasgow Grace this afternoon? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard it and you've heard it said that you shall not commit murder. But I want to say to you that every one of you who is angry with his brother, who insults his brother, is guilty of murder. And he goes on, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent is guilty of adultery. And so, yes, we may not have killed someone like David did. Uh, We may not have slept with someone else's wife. But if we're honest with ourselves, we are all here, the man. And so firstly, we see there that David is confronted by the Lord's servant. And now secondly, we see that David is uncovered by the Lord's word. All of David's defenses here have been pretty much flattened with just those four words that Nathan speaks. In our translation, it says, you are the man. And now David finds himself, I imagine, kind of essentially standing naked before God's word. Uh, The writer of the Hebrew says that the word of God is able to to cut into the very heart of things and expose us. And that it's able to go into like, like a scalpel and reveal things. And so Nathan continues and he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. And Nathan does three things here. Firstly, he reminds David of of God's provision for him there in verse 7 and 8. He gives a a list of all the things he's done. He's anointed him king over Israel. He's delivered him out of the hand of Saul. He's given him his master's house and his master's wives. And Nathan sums this up and says, if this were all too little, I would have given you even more. Nathan reminds David here that he has been on the receiving end of the manifold goodness and greatness of God. He is the one that was called out as a shepherd boy. He is the one who God anointed him back in chapter 7. He is the one who gave him victory over his enemies. Not also that, Nathan has a big question to ask David there in verse 9. The big question that David must answer and sometimes we must answer too. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his sight? 
The whole crux of, I think, chapter 11 and chapter 12, as Ian gave us last week, is this verse here in verse 9. That David despised the word of the Lord. All his actions come from this point where that he refuses to do what the Bible says. He refuses to listen to what God says. And we all do this, don't we? Maybe think back just in your minds for a moment. I'm sure there's been a time like me in my life where uh, you've made a major right-hand turn, as it were, uh, when you should have just carried on straight down that road. And I don't think it would take you too long to realize that you could trace that back to the fact that you knew better than what the Bible said. Uh, you decided that you would go your own way, that you didn't need God, and you wouldn't, that anything that he said didn't apply in this case. God is deeply displeased here. His word is being despised, and David's actions reveal that he was willing to set aside everything and everything that God had done for him and everything that God had said to him for the pursuit of his passion. And then thirdly, Nathan also tells David briefly here of the consequences of what he has done. Uh, David has had Uriah murdered, the blood is on his hands, and so Nathan the prophet says to him, the sword will not depart from your house. And we're not going to spend too much time today on these consequences as they, they flow out in the rest of the chapters of 2 Samuel. But if you read on in the story, you will see that this is exactly what happens. His sons end up killing one another. Uh, David's dynasty is going to continue, but it will be marked with bloodshed constantly all the way to David's own death and beyond. It's there in verse 11, out of your own household I will bring calamity on you. I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Do you remember what Samuel said to Saul? Uh, He said, the Lord is going to remove your throne. Uh, He's going to remove your crown and he's going to give it to a neighbor. Uh, That neighbor being David. And so the Lord says to David, I'm going to give your wives to a neighbor, which here is reference to his son, Absalom, uh, who in turn is involved in incestuous activity with the wives of David. Do not for a moment assume that when we blatantly despise the word of the God, or the word of God, uh, despite all that we will see in moments to come, It doesn't come with consequences. And here it is made perfectly clear. I'll take your wives, I'll give them to a neighbor, and what you did undercover in secret, I will do in broad daylight before the watching world. Now there's an old saying, a secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. And so we're left with this question then, aren't we? Is this it for David? Is there anything that can be done for David now that he has been despised and rejected? Well, what happens next is is one of the greatest moments in David's life, uh, one of the greatest moments in the history of Israel, and I would say one of the greatest moments in the history of the world. Verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. No attempt to explain, no attempt to disprove or justify. 
Dale Ralph Davis, a Bible scholar, when he commentates on this, he writes this. There is no excuse, no cloaking, no searching for a loophole, no pretext put forward, and no human weakness pleaded. He acknowledges his guilt openly, candidly, briefly, and without prevarication. In the Hebrew, it's just two words. I have sinned. And actually on three occasions throughout chapters 11 and 12, throughout this whole story of Bathsheba and and all the consequences that David will follow, there's three occasions where two words in Hebrew really spring out. Chapter 11, two words in Hebrew, I am pregnant. Chapter 12, two words in Hebrew, you're the man. And here, two words in Hebrew, I have sinned. David has been totally exposed here. His sin and guilt are are laid out in front of them. As if today on Buchanan Street someone is shouting out all that David has done, with thousands maybe able to hear. And the only safe thing that can be done with this guilt that David has is for it to be washed away. And that's what David realizes when he writes Psalm 51 uh, in later uh, time, when he's reflecting on all that has happened here with Bathsheba and Nathan rebuking him. He writes these words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sometimes it's only when our sin And there might be something you're thinking of just now. It's only when that sin is laid right before us, when we've been uncovered by God's word, uh, do we really realize that need of a savior. And so we've seen uh, David confronted by the Lord's servant. He's been uncovered by the Lord's words. And finally, he is most gloriously pardoned by the Lord's mercy. Uh, Did you see Nathan's reply there? The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But maybe you're thinking, how can this be? This is pretty scandalous, isn't it? Every sense of justice, of retribution, of getting what you deserve, and it just seems to be totally turned on its head here. And remember for a minute what happened to Saul. You could actually argue that that David is a far worse guy in human terms and in terms of his sin than Saul was. Saul was a bad guy, but he didn't do anything quite what David had done here. And Saul ended up losing his kingdom. Whereas we'll see in chapters to come, David keeps his. So what's the difference here? What can we learn from the difference between how God deals with David and God deals with Saul? Well, when Saul was confronted by the word of the prophet Samuel, he tried to explain it away. He offered various excuses and so on and so on and so on. And what about David? He repented. Just those three words, I have sinned. And remember David's first reaction to Nathan's story. Uh, he attempts there to rid himself of guilt by judging, passing judgment on another. Uh, there's someone worse than me. Uh, he's done that, not me. But there's none of that here now. Because his repentance is only because of God's grace to him. Uh, When we turn to God and acknowledge our guilt and our sin, it is indicative of who God is, that he will forgive us 
and that he is at work in our hearts. But by nature, we want to run, we want to hide, don't we? Uh, We want to explain it away. We want to say, well, you know, we're not quite as bad as that person. Uh, We want to make ourselves seem better than everyone else. So how does David do what he does here by just admitting his guilt? He does so primarily, I think, because he trusts in what God's word says to him by the prophet Nathan. He not only trusts uh, what Nathan is doing when he confronts him and uncovers him, uh, but he trusts God in what he says because of his unfailing love, because of God's compassion. I read these references, verses from Hebrews 4 earlier, but they speak so powerfully of this as well. Uh, Let me read those for us just now. Uh, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you read that on its own, and this could have applied to David's life as well, it's pretty devastating, isn't it? There's no escape here. But the writer goes on to point that we need not fear being uncovered because we have in Jesus the one who covers all our sins. The writer continues, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the invitation in coming to God is in repentance is to approach his throne confidently, recognizing that we cannot hide anything from him, but he has provided one, the Lord Jesus, who covers all our sins. You see, the reason that David actually stopped covering up his sin was because he was convinced that God had forgiven him. Uh, He was convinced that God's power could take away his sin, as Nathan says to him here. And David writes in Psalm 32 these words, reflecting again on what had happened. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And when Paul, the Apostle Paul, is, is ex- explaining justification by faith in, in Romans 4, he uses two Old Testament examples. Uh, firstly, Abraham. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. And then Paul goes on to say, uh, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he quotes those verses in Psalm 32. You see, we will never actually come to God, and maybe this is what you're thinking just now, we'll never actually come to God in our, our nakedness and confess our sin to him until we are convinced of his compassion and his grace and his love for us. For some of us, maybe you're in the room this, this afternoon, uh, the reason why you've not come to God in this way is because we've never realized that we're sinful. Uh, We've never actually faced up to the fact that sin is not simply what we do, but it is fundamentally what and who we are. Now that's what David writes in Psalm 51. He writes that before we were born, while we were still in our mother's womb, before we even had the opportunity to do anything good or bad, so to speak, 
the inherent natural warp of the human heart was at work in us. And for some of us, though, we've never come to living faith in Jesus because we're, yes, we're aware of how bad we are, but there is always someone else that's not, that is as worse than us. And we're convinced, aren't we, that sometimes we're, we're relatively better than everyone else. Uh, but as we come to the Lord's table in just a few moments uh, to take communion, we remember that his body was broken for us. And uh, we remember that his blood shed for us. And we're affirming there, aren't we, in the cross, that, that God pardons the sin of everyone who believes in Jesus. That even though we have fallen short of God's glory, his love goes further. And so the gospel message is not condemnation. Uh, the gospel message, as the writer of Hebrew says, it is invitation. Uh, the gospel message isn't verse 7, you are the man. The gospel message is what Nathan replies, God has taken away your sin. Uh, so the invitation is to come uh, to the one who hanged upon the cross, uh, who bore our punishment, to a punishment we deserve, not him, to give us a forgiveness that we don't deserve, but and at the cross, God does not only pardon those who believe in Christ, he, he gives his perfect justice, doesn't he? Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me. It's virtually impossible for us to read this passage here and this conversation between Nathan and David without finding ourselves going to the cross. And it's at the cross we see the great evidence of this work out, isn't it? And there Jesus crucified between two thieves. And people had been abusing him and scorning him. They'd dressed him up, they'd torn down his clothes, they'd stripped him, they'd nailed him to the cross. And if it wasn't bad enough, these two guys on either side, they maligned him, they cajoled him, they said things about him that were unkind. And as those two guys on either side, their time is on this earth is fading. Uh, suddenly one of them wakes up, doesn't they? And uh, one of them, uh, do you ever think about it? Just one of them. Do you ever think about what the other guy was thinking? Uh, he was just as close to Jesus in this moment as his friend. Uh, he saw what his friend saw. He heard what his friend heard. But it was that man on the cross, wasn't it, who said, hey, wait a minute. Uh, we are up here getting what we deserve. Uh, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then hope against hope. He says, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Now, can you get to heaven on the strength of faith as feeble as that? Well, the Bible would say yes. John Murray, theologian, says, if you have faith as slender as one strand of a spider's web, there you will find evidence of God's redeeming love for you. So then David said to Nathan, I have sinned. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Uh, but of course, there's consequences for David, aren't there? And Lewis will continue this next week. Uh, but there's this doubt lying over David, isn't there, of these consequences? And you might ask yourself, well, how come if God is so gracious to David, to make sure that David's eternal future is saved, his sin has been taken away, 
How does then God bring chaos and calamity and bloodshed to his family? Now let me just finish with words of Alec Motia that he writes in his devotional book on the Psalms. Now he writes this, Repentance is like fetching back a stone that you've just thrown into a pool. The stone can be retrieved, but the ripples go on spreading. God mercifully accepted David's repentance, but as we'll see in the remainder of his life, the Lord did not choose to stop the ripples. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that we have this story in front of us 